Welcome to our main Multiple Lenses for Tefillah Education. This podcast series hosts a panel of tefillah educators led by Rabbi Svi Hirschfield in an invigorating discussion of how to make prayer relevant to young people. As our focus, we'll use a menu of educational goals developed by the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators, where each educator explores this episode's prayer through a lens of either connecting to God, developing a sense of Jewish community, or cultivating personal growth. We hope this podcast challenges you to improve tefillah education, and let us say, Amen. Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to another exciting podcast, Amen. That was not me answering a blessing, brother. That's the title of our podcast. Multiple lenses for tefillah education. And what an all-star crew we have with me today. Uh, we went straight to the top for this one. We have Rabbi Leon Morris, who uh, is the president of Pardes, but also uh, a teacher of liturgy and tefillah for a number of years. And we are also joined by my friend Penny Joel, who is director of the Pardes Experiential Educators Program and part of the staff and faculty of PCJE. My name is Svi Hirschfield. It's my pleasure to be uh, hosting and facilitating this podcast. Our topic for today is a tefillah that uh, I think is widely uh, recited throughout all the different movements of Judaism, the Aleinu prayer. We even named a program of ours, Aleinu L'Shabeach, uh, in tefillah education. So it's a, it's a prayer that I think is known to all of you and probably a prayer for you educators out there that you are going to be called upon to teach uh, and explain and inspire. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn to, uh, to Leon and ask him to get us started. Thank you. Thank you, Tzvi. Uh, great to be here with you on this table strewn with various editions uh, of Sidurim. Aleinu uh, L'Shabeach, I want to first offer just a little bit of background and history to the prayer. And then I want to offer, uh, before handing it off to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Penny Joel, <laughs> the uh, two, two ways, two insights into this. Aleinu uh, is a piyut, actually. It's a liturgical poem uh, that is, uh, is quite early. Uh, some attributed to Rav in the third century Babylonia. Uh, most scholars believe it was, it was later and from actually Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Uh, it was initially composed for the most distinctive Amidah that we have, which is Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, the, the additional Amidah of Rosh Hashanah, uh, that has a section on Malchuyot, kingship, Zichronot, um, God who remembers, and Shofarot, uh, verses having to do with Revelation. And this was the central introductory piyut of the Malchiot, of the, uh, the kingship's verses, uh, establishing God as king. Uh, it was obviously a case of one of uh, these situations where people loved the prayer and they didn't want to just recite it twice a year or it was uh, probably also early on part of Yom Kippur. So they didn't want to recite it just three times a year. They wanted to recite it all the time and it became part of the daily service uh, in the 12th or 13th century. Um, and, and I want to look at two particular pieces of it. Uh, first, the idea that 
within this prayer is a struggle or a tension that is very much a contemporary tension of, of ours and of our students, which is the tension between uh, universalism and particularism. Here it plays out in terms of uh, how unique are the Jewish people and their relationship with God, and how much is the God of Israel, in fact, the God of all the world. And if we look at the beginning of the prayer, uh, we, see, uh, we see strands of both in a way that could be confusing. And in a way, I want to suggest that maybe that f- this first paragraph of Aleinu mirrors the contemporary confusion that we find ourselves in uh, between universalism and particularism. So first, one notices that how God is identified here. Aleinu l'shabeach la'adon hakol, the, the master of all. Uh, ascribe greatness to God who is called Yotzer Bereshit, a very universal label for God, the author of creation. Uh, Sachs uh, translates it here, the, the creator of creation, Yotzer Bereshit. Uh, and then we get very particular. Shalo Asanu who didn't make us, that is, we Jews, like the other nations of the earth, and didn't make uh, our family, didn't make us, didn't place us like the families of the earth. And it goes on in very particularist language. So, uh, that our portion and our destiny is not like theirs. Uh, and then, of course, there's a, a line that we won't dwell on too much today, but which was removed by uh, censors, uh, Christian censors, uh, and then reinserted, uh, but not universally uh, in, in contemporary times. Uh, so there is this mix of the universal and the particular. And um, how do we resolve that? Uh, so again, I think this is a live issue outside of Elenu for Jewish educators. Uh, this is probably the issue that American Jews are most confused about, is how do we honor both a sense of, Jew- of universalism that springs from Jewish tradition with a sense of Jewish particularism? How can I show loyalty to the Jewish people? How can I uh, testify to our uniqueness and still wholeheartedly embrace all the people of the world and feel a sense of obligation to all the people of the world. Some of that tension is resolved in the second paragraph of Elenu. Uh, therefore, uh, we place our hope in you, O God. In which um, we have this repeated sense, this repeated leitmotif of the word kol, uh, and, and I want to attribute this to an article that I read by Ruvain Kimmelman. Um, God will, we see in the second paragraph, that God will come to be recognized as the ruler of all humanity. And, and this repetition, this light vort, this repetition of the word kol, we, we see throughout the second paragraph. 
וכל בני בשר יקראו בשמך, יכירו וידעו כל יושבי תבל, all of the earth's inhabitants will come to know you. כי לך תכרה כל ברך, every knee will prostrate before you. And it goes on and on. ויקבלו כולם את עול מלכותך, that all of everyone, all of us, will come to accept the yoke of your reign. And of course, the line that comes at the height of reconciling universalism and particularism is the pasuk, the verse from Zechariah, Bayom ha'hu Adonai echad u'shemo echad. On that day, God's name will be one, and God will be one, and God's name will be one. We reconcile the particularism of Shaloh Asanu Kugoye Haratzot with the universalism by understanding that there's kind of stage one and stage two, and that ultimately we look to a time, we look toward a time in which all of humanity will not become Jews, because that's not necessary, but will come to recognize that God is God of all the world. The second lens that I want to just offer is really just about the very first word, aleinu. It is incumbent upon us. This translation says it is our duty. Uh, some translations say it is upon us, or it is ours. It's our obligation. And I think that there is a notion here that is urgently countercultural. Uh, this sense of what is incumbent upon us, what is our duty, what is our obligation. And in a, a world in which our students, because of the culture in general, are increasingly individualistic, increasingly uh, focused on being kind of isolated individuals, the plurality of this obligation stands out. It is upon us, all of us together. And simply the notion of obligation is countercultural. What is it that is our duty? Uh, how, do we, how do we articulate a sense of duty and an obligation in a world in which uh, personal autonomy has kind of run amok? And uh, I, I've been in uh, one synagogue I can think of uh, where... Uh, a uh, Jewish renewal synagogue, Romamu, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where they've asked people to call out at this point, what is Aleinu? What's our obligation? And people from the, from the kahal, the, the congregation, shout out uh, you know, to, uh, to pursue justice, uh, to be kind to each other, to do acts of chesed. Uh, how do we articulate this sense of communal obligation? So, uh, first of all, it's very powerful uh, messages that, that you raised for us. I want to follow up with a couple things, and, and Penny, you're also invited to, to follow up before we turn towards uh, your takeaway. Uh, first, but what do you do with the overtly theological part? Because you know, it's interesting, the examples you gave from Romamu are about you know, doing chesed and doing justice, and those are the kind of things that nobody argues about. 
But what do you do with this overtly monotheistic, you know, claim that we want the rest of the world to actually believe in, in this one God and connect to this one God? And also something else at the very beginning, which I just wanted to know your own sense of this idea of wanting to say a prayer more often. I'm wondering how many of us can relate, but you mentioned the idea that mm. this, this it was so beautiful, people wanted to say it. And, I, and I'm, you know, especially now, you know, where Alenu has become the moment where people head for the door, start folding their talit, you know, start talking to the person, because it's the sign of it's over, yeah. right? It's ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, you know, and I'm just wondering uh, if you could address, has, is making it part of the routine taken something away? So I guess there are three things on the table I kind of <laughs> wanted you to address. I stuck in the third one. Right, right. Okay. Um, so I, I think that with regard to the first question, it's important for us, I believe, to have a historical context that the, the belief and worship in one God for the authors of this prayer was a necessary, uh, a, a necessary theological claim that uh, for goodness to enter the world, uh, that this was a world in which idolatry was uh, tied to everything unethical and everything evil. Uh, so I think that's something we have to have in mind. Um, I think that uh, we've seen over the centuries and even over the last decade that um, there is a, a kind of expansiveness for defining monotheism. Um, you know, we see this with the Meiri in medieval times who, who argued that, uh, that Christianity, despite uh, the, the iconography, uh, was monotheism. Um, we, I'm thinking of, I think it was 15 or 20 years ago that a group of uh, Orthodox rabbis met with Hindu scholars in India and they came to, uh, to write a declaration that said that uh, contemporary Hinduism fully understood is monotheism. Uh, so I, I'm sure there are limits within that and I think you're pushing me uh, I am. to... Uh, <laughs> to describe those limits. Um, but the kinds of accommodations, the, the ways in which we have over the years struggled to understand the connection between the acknowledgement of one God with an ethical system um, can be more expansive than we might believe at first glance. But I hear the problem that you're putting on the table. I don't know exactly what to do with that. Um, you know, do we want to say, well, what we mean by um, uh, what we mean by uh, you know the whole beneba sar that every human being will come to call out your name? Well, your name is ethics and goodness, you know, I understand the danger of loosening the, the reins to such a degree. Uh, 
and maybe even in in essence you're you're challenging me and and this prayer to say that you know even the second paragraph in its universalism is not so universal and uh, I think that's a good issue for us to to struggle with um, I love your observation about what it means to fall in love with a prayer and to say as the editors of the Sidor did let's say by the 12th or 13th century, you know, this, this piyut that we get to hear twice a year, maybe three times a year, uh, we love it and the people love it. I imagine the people loved it more than the rabbis and that was probably the impetus. The people love it, so let's give it to them every Shabbat. And then somebody else said, no, 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 let's give it to them every day, every, every tefillah. Uh, let's, let's throw in Aleinu L'Shabbat. Um, to me, the association that I have with that move is the way in which all of the tefillot, all of the liturgy, the sidor and the machzor is this great treasury that uh, we need to open and it isn't humanly possible to lift up all of it all the time in the same sort of way. And so I think it is a treasure house in the, in the sense that we can... We can open it up and we can see, ah, this is what we really need. This has a new, a new voice or new resonance for us right now. And so let's, let's say it with greater fervor or let's emphasize it more or let's have it at the exclusion of something else. Let's try to, to, uh, to lift this up more enthusiastically. Um, what was the other My piece? last was whether saying it all the time you think that has, has stripped it of some of its power because it's become... Yeah, so I mean, this is, this is the constant tension. Uh, this is the constant tension with, with every part of the liturgy, with every part of tefillah that becomes... Uh, that, that has the danger of becoming rote, which is why we need Jewish educators to somehow help us rediscover it and not say it by rote. With that. Penny... You can both respond, and you also can share your own, both, um, whatever right. works for Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, so actually, um, Leon really touched on something that I was going to speak about, which is this idea of community and how this tefillah started off as like a Rosh Hashanah tefillah. Um, so this, for me, when I think about Aleinu, even though I say it every single day, the most powerful Aleinu that I look forward to is during the Yomim Noraim, during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, and a lot of that is uh, because it's communal and the spaces that I've been in, everyone says it out loud um, and then does something that we don't do during the year, which is get on the ground and bend down and like bow in a way that is not the norm in a Jewish synagogue on a normal regular day or Shabbat or other holiday. Um, and there's something about that group bowing um, and everyone saying it out loud that I think um, kind of emphasizes the communal aspect of this prayer. Um, and what's interesting is when they instituted it every single day, 
we, we didn't continue to bow on the ground. Like that's a uniquely Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur experience and not all synagogues even do it on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Everyone might bow in the sense of like bending over, but not all synagogues get down on the ground and bow. Um, so then I was thinking about like, what does that mean? And why is that so powerful um, for me? Uh, and I think part of it is because it's not the norm, and it does separate Aleinu from the other Aleinus that, like to be pointed out, tend to be said uh, at the end of davening, where everyone might be saying it with a lot of energy, like when I have taught in high school, Aleinu is said loudly and enthusiastically, I would love to think it's because they connect to Aleinu, and I really think it's because they know they're finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and how we bridge that gap of like, this should be said with enthusiasm this should be said focusing on the community and what it means to be part of the Jewish people and how to a certain extent how how we the ideals of God and what God expects from us um, and so um, I, I feel like it's an opportunity at least in schools to start that conversation of what is it like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to say this prayer and what is it like when we say it in school, or what is it like when we say it in camp? And and why is that different, if it is? I will assume it is, but maybe it's not. Um, why is it different? And if it's not different, great, and why? Uh, great or not great, if they don't connect with it at all in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, then we're battling the same problem. Um, so looking at it like that, and looking at the context of, I mean, I think it's a great lesson, knew that first it starts with the nation and us as a group, and then, we aren't that self-involved. It's not only about us. It's also about the world at large. And and we aren't a people that necessarily believes that we're the only ones that matter. Yes, we might be saying, well, we want everyone else on board with monotheism. Um, but like you pointed out, monotheism is not, o- Judaism is not the only monotheistic religion. So now we also want to look at the broader world. And the broader world is included in our vision of the future. It's not that like, okay, all of those people are going to be, something's going to happen to them and only the Jews will be left and isn't that amazing? It's, that's not how we want it to work. We want it to work that everyone else is included. So that idea of community, both like kind of local and then community, how we fit in the rest of the world is I think a, a place where students can really connect to, well, that's actually the struggle that we might have, right? We might be balancing our communal local and our communal universal and Aleinu is addressing that in a certain way and I might even think to ask students what would you add to this Aleinu for today what would be what would resonate with you when thinking about here's what our community believes in or what our community wants to strive for locally the just the Jews and what is it universally that we want to strive for Um, and the focus on that kind of making it a little more tangible. But then also, on the other hand, part of what I said before is that physical getting down on the ground. And and what does that mean? And why is that powerful? And though we don't do it on a daily basis, is there something that can get that feeling for us um, on a daily basis? Is there something that resonates physically, that physical movement? Um, maybe we should be more you know, mindful of how we bow during Aleinu because that seems to be something that was consciously done and and kind of visceral so what what does that really look like so i, I want to uh and then leanne of course you can react as well but i want i want to push you on something as an educator you know this question of of god and whether 
relating to God as a type of placeholder for the highest human values and aspirations and sort of sidestepping that whole, hey, is belief in God really important versus no, I really want to put on the table the idea that it's important that we serve God, recognize God, regardless of ethics or everything else that, I mean, as an educator, do you want to put that on the table or do you worry, uh-oh, then one kid says, well, I don't really believe in God when they check out. No, I'm, I'm definitely someone who will push that. Uh, I think that it's important for students to think about the idea of God and not let them have a free pass. Just be like, oh, well, I don't need to think about this. These are higher ethics and I'm going to just go with that. God is too complicated. God has a lot. It's too heavy. Um, but um, in doing that, also creating a space where if you don't believe in God, this can still have meaning for you. If you're struggling with belief in God, this can still have meaning for you. Um, but to give the avenue of like, this is definitely, yes, Yes, we're talking about belief in God. Yes, we're talking about what that means. Um, but but we're not boxing you out if you don't subscribe to that or if you're really not sure whether you do or not. This is a this is a great time to open up that conversation about, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean, belief in God? What does that mean that this is this is what Elenu might be talking about? And and what does that mean to me vis-a-vis my own belief in God or lack thereof or struggle with it? And the importance of belief in God for other people as well. For sure. For sure. Um, I mean, that's a a core tenet. I think it's hard to just, like, gloss over that and be like, belief in God, it's a tough topic, so we're not going to talk about it. Mm. Um, I think the talking about it also creates a safe space for someone who's struggling with belief to say, oh, okay, I'm not the only person who's thinking, "Uh, do I, do I not? I don't really want to deal with it. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity to kind of address that. I wanted to comment on the uh, on the prostration of Yom Kippur falling Korim, as, as people uh, mm-hmm. refer to it. Um, I didn't grow up in a synagogue where people did this, and uh, and it has become for me uh, such a highlight. Mm-hmm. I think because of the the aspect or the opportunity of physicality that, mm-hmm. that you describe. Uh, one of my uh, sweetest memories as a uh, as a father with uh, with a at that time, a young child was um, just having my son come up on the bima where I was doing it, mm-hmm. and without ever having seen it or not, without having anything explained to him, he just mirrored what I was mm-hmm. doing, and uh, it was just like the sweetest moment of that of that Rosh Hashanah. And I was thinking, I don't have the quote in front of me, but Franz Rosenzweig, the great early twentieth century German Jewish philosopher. Uh, had this beautiful explanation of doing this in which he says, uh, once a year, turns out it's, it's three times a year, both days of Rosh Hashanah That's and Yom Kippur, but he says, once a year the Jew does what he wouldn't do before Haman mm-hmm. and which he wouldn't do before any king of flesh and blood, and he bows down for no other reason than to recognize the majesty of God. Mm-hmm. It's very, Amazing. very That's powerful. Very and it's a nice chance to take a rest during that long service, <laughs> you know, in my experience. Uh, but those other things are certainly very important as well. So uh, the only thing I will add to all the wonderful insights we've heard is the second paragraph, which uses the word nikavet, about hopefulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my experience, tefillah is always risky because it opens us up to what we want. Right? It challenges us to often look at the world, as this paragraph does, right? Uh, and talk about how the world is not the way we want it to be, right? Over and over again. 
Uh, and we, and then what is it to enter that reality of wanting is very risky because once we want, uh, we can be really open to disappointment and anger and frustration because if I really want it and I don't have it, well, what does that mean? Uh, in my case, usually means overeating is uh, <laughs> right around the corner from that moment. But uh, I think the great bridge between wanting and not entering a place of anger is hope, right? Mm -hmm. Hopefulness is what allows us to maintain a deep wanting without then feeling terrible about the world as it actually is because I think the message of hope is that in some way what you want is already present in potential. And, and you're affirming your, really, I think, faith. It's an emunah issue that eventually it's going to be realized. So it's okay to want it because maybe even wanting it is a step towards ultimately bringing it about at the same time acknowledging it's not here with us uh, right now. So I think that this paragraph... Uh, with this profound hopefulness that, that I imagine, especially if this is being written in the 4th or 5th century, right, to look around and see we're not in a world where all these things are true. And I guess some would say, based on how the world, at least some of the world, is not uh, in this place of God being in charge and humanity all acknowledging God's name and the end of wickedness and everything else, that we we... Can, we can want it very deeply because that, with that wanting comes a real sense of hopefulness that uh, it, it will happen someday in the future. So I think that, that for me, that's a powerful takeaway that also kind of addresses the challenge of uh, prayer. I love that. Uh, this uh, hope as a sense of obligation. Mm -hmm. uh, it mirrors the bracha from the Amidah, uh, uh, you know, we, we hope for your salvation all day long. Mm -hmm. That's our obligation, to be people of hope. Which is hard, right? Uh, because it's, it's easier, I would say indifference or cynicism is an easier way to go because then you're not left with that, that wanting that doesn't mm -hmm. get uh, answered. But maybe that's part of what we have to deal with. Yeah, I don't know that cynicism is the easier way to go because then you end up unhappy and unhappy is not necessarily easier um, but that hopefulness I think also the articulating of that of that want like you said is is almost like you put it out there in the world and then you're one step closer to actualizing whatever it is that that want is hmm. um, beautiful it's great uh, any quick uh, piece of advice or suggestions for educators who are going to be trying to teach this tefillah is something more than the speed reading or speed <laughs> speaking exercise that comes. And I want to put that out there really as a challenge that I think, Penny, it echoes what you were talking about, that uh, in many instances when they see people either say it or sing it in synagogue, it often does come as this anticlimactic, okay, let's just get this one done and then we're out of here. And how as educators we can either turn that around or encourage that second look. Any thoughts on that? I think, I think part of it is, is creating a space where you can have a conversation about Alenu. I'm, growing up, when we had any class that was about prayer, it was super dry and super boring, and you were just translating what the text was. And even if it did, even if it had the potential to speak to me, it was presented in such a way that it was, there was no dialogue. Here's what it means. This is what you're saying. Go have it in mind. Um, so I feel like not doing that, um, but opening dialogue to say, 
here's how we, I mean, everyone would recognize, here's how this works. Everyone zips through this, but maybe we should take a second, read it, think about what it's talking about and have a discussion about what this is talking about so that students can pick an element, think about why it might be more powerful on Rosh Hashanah than it is on a weekday, why they decided to make it every single day and what about that they can walk away with so that maybe it is more intentional um, and kind of everyone can think about it a little more and maybe not run like bats out of hell. <laughs> and, and I think I want to go back to sort of my, my two frames for this. Uh, I could imagine kind of dissecting Alenu into phrases that are more particular and particularistic, more about the Jewish people and our unique relationship with God, and phrases that are more universalistic, and uh, and to see kind of the artistry of this uh, this knitting together of these two different strands uh, in some kind of way in, in the classroom. I think it might also be interesting and fun to uh, to create some kind of a list of uh, an Elenu list. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we feel we are obligated as a result of this, uh, as a result of God being Yotzer Bereshit? Uh, what are the obligations that emerge for us from that? Uh, those are both beautiful. I think the only thing I could also recommend is that you take those two primary verses, one from Devarim, the other from Zechariah, and look at them in the Tanakh. Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes these verses don't feel like verses anymore because they, once verses become part of liturgy, we see them as part of the Siddur, <laughs> and uh, we can forget that they're taken from the Tanakh. I think it happens all over the place. It's kind of like you know streets in Jerusalem, yes. and you're like... <laughs> Oh, that guy was named after the street. Right, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's so interesting they yes. named that child after <laughs> at Herzl Street. Um, <laughs> or, um, yeah. Uh, so I think sometimes looking at the verses, just saying, so what's being spoken about here? What what is Moshe want from us in Varim? What's the prophet trying to communicate? I mean, that's another way to sort of step outside uh, and sort of uh, look at the liturgy. But I think, again, from both of you, it's not going to happen just by singing it with a new tune or singing it louder or shushing kids who aren't, or, you know, who are talking or, you know, reprimanding who are not singing. Uh, I think uh, we have to somehow turn back towards the content uh, in some sort of mindful way. Uh, and again, it can be very exciting to take something because they, they know it already. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you don't have to, you know, confront that challenge of this tefillah that they're not aware of. But at the same time, I would say for adults also, a lot of people are saying this, have been saying it for years and years and years. Are we thinking about what we're saying? Which, of course, is the challenge of tefillah education uh, across the board. Any more closing thoughts from my two exciting guests? For the silent uh, director in the background? No, he just made a face and waved himself off. That's Ruvang, everyone. He's here. It's like a metaphor for divine presence, really. <laughs> Silent, but somehow we feel your presence all around us all the time anyways. So on I'll that offer note, one closing uh, <laughs> insight that I also learned, learned yeah, from for uh, Professor Ruvain Kimmelman is the beginning of Elenu is an ayin, mm -hmm. the end of Elenu, echad, is Dalit. a dalit, and that there's a whole relationship 
that kind of mirrors Shema Yisrael. Oh, for here. sure. Absolutely. It's, it's going to be a tape, right? That. Because it talks about Kabbalat Olmachut Shemayim, accepting the yoke of heaven. And Rashi, in fact, says that the Shema is a prayer for this verse from Zechariah. That we're saying, God, someday mm. your name will be one for everybody. So there's a lot of uh, interesting overlap. So those of you who are interested, call us, email us, and we're happy to talk to you about Elenu more and more. We're never done. We love. We do this all the time. We're just only taping a short piece of it. So uh, on that note, uh, thank you again for your time and attention. We'd love to get your feedback also about whether this is helpful for you, how we could be more helpful. Uh, and remember our, our constant messages uh, twofold. First, there are no easy answers as educators. You have to engage the material and deepen your own relationship with the material. Uh, the good news is it's excellent material, so there's a lot to discover there. And of course, again, with your students, you have to give them the opportunity, the time and the opportunity to uh, find and engage the content. So we can all say amen to that one. Amen. And thank you. We look forward to learning with you in the future. Thank you to our, my, our outstanding guests, to Leon and Penny. Thank you. Thank you. For our database of tefillah resources and to learn more about tefillah goals, go to tefillah, T-E-F-I-L-A-H dot pardes dot org. And for more great podcasts, visit Elmad, E-L-M-A-D dot pardes dot org. See you next time.